Open in your Bibles this morning to 1 Kings chapter 8, and we will focus our time on verses 41 through 43. Again, that's 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 41 through 43. The title of our message this morning is When the Foreigner Comes, and we'll dive into that. But first, some clarifications are in order. First of all, I am not a missionary, as you could probably tell from my brief biographical sketch, Uh, but I did cut my teeth on missional living because of ABWE and because of all of the nations that God is bringing to our door, which is the theme of the conference this year. We had a group, we prayed for Libya, we prayed for other countries in North Africa, and then in my own neighborhood, God opened my eyes to the Turks that lived in our neighborhood, to Gambians that lived in our neighborhood, to Syrians who lived in our neighborhood, and more. Maybe you've had a similar experience yourself. Because in case you haven't noticed, God is bringing all of the nations to North America and to cities like Allentown and even to my own. I recently was at a pastor's conference and in Nigerian pastor, so he's a believer, he's not an unbeliever coming to the U.S., but he's a Nigerian pastor and we were in the food line and there was peach cobbler at the end with aerosolized, you know, spray-on whipped cream, right? And he's looking at this and he's trying to decipher this. How do I, how do, I do this? And so, well, you've you got to kind of just press it and yeah, it, it comes out and had to teach him that. And I said, the glory of being an American is that we will put anything in a spray can, <laughs> even cheese. Well, anyway, people are flocking here from the unreached people groups of the world. Each year, about 40, excuse me, 450,000, not 45, 450,000 individuals from the 1040 window come here and study as students abroad. If just 1% of that nearly half a million were to be saved and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know what that would mean? That would mean upwards of 4,500 new missionaries to unreached people groups who could go back to their home countries. That would be incredible. That would be globe-changing. I imagine the Apostle Paul would be ecstatic if he heard that, right? Because he said his ambition in Romans 15.20 is to preach Christ where Christ is not yet known, and yet less than 20% of these students are ever invited into an American home. Many of them aren't coming to know Christ, let alone coming to know an American. So how should we respond when the foreigner comes? So in our text this morning... 1 Kings chapter 8, let's set that up by way of context. It's been about four or 500 years since the Exodus. And in about another four or 500 years will be the exile. So this is the high point at the center of Israelite and Jewish history. There's one nation in the land with one king who's a son of David, and the holy God of Israel is coming down to dwell in their midst. So this is about as good as it gets in the Old Testament. Are you with me? So we'll skip and hop around here a little bit. We'll start with verses 22 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you have declared to him. You spoke with your mouth, and with your hand you have fulfilled it this day. 
He goes on to make multiple petitions. Skip to verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Remember, he's dedicating the temple that's just been built. And yet he says, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall dwell there. Skip on down to verses 41 through 43. This will be our focus. And he prays, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and may fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Join me in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we study this inspired prayer, this inspired passage, We pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you would say to us through it, even now. Open our eyes to your word. Let us behold wondrous things out of your law. We pray that you would also give us hearts to obey and to receive what we have here this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this is not your typical missions text. For those of you expecting another Matthew 28 sermon, I apologize in advance. There's a couple dangers that we must avoid in treating a text like this that talks about the nations, about the foreigner, about the migrant. There's ditches on both sides. One, you could easily make it a sermon on social justice, a sermon on border policy, or the lack thereof, on open borders. Of course, to do that would be to hijack the text. It's not arguing for a lack of immigration policy in ancient Israel. In fact, Proverbs 25, verse 28 says that a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Walls, borders, boundaries are good things, biblically. Of course, you could also steer this text into a nationalist ditch. You could make America the temple. You could make America the shining city on a hill, the new Jerusalem, the joy of men's desiring. That would also be to do violence to the text. The U.S. is not Israel. In fact, Paul says that all who are in Christ, who walk according to this rule, what he outlines in the book of Galatians, he says in Galatians 6.16, are the Israel of God. Believers, Christians, are the Israel of God. So this is not a political text, although it does have implications, of course, as all of Scripture does have for all of life. But this is a missions text. Think of this. At this zenith of patriotic pride in the life of Israel, the king of Israel, the covenantal head of God's people, shifts his gaze outward towards Gentiles. What a taste of Christ, who said that when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself, John 12, 32. Well, this text here implies two actions that God takes 
two things God does, and then one result. That's how we'll unpack it. And so to put it all in a sentence, it's this. If you're a note taker, this would be our main point. That God displays his glory to all the peoples and receives all who come to him so that all the peoples of earth would know and fear God in Christ. Again, our main theme of the message this morning is that God displays his glory to all the peoples and receives all those who come to him so that all the peoples of the earth would know and fear God in Christ. So let's consider the first action, that God displays his glory to all the peoples in Christ. Look with me again to verse 41. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, let's just stop right there, even though it's mid-sentence. First of all, who are the foreigners that are in view here? Well, it defines it for us, thankfully. It says, one who is not of your people Israel. Then it says, who is from a far country. So this word here can be rendered foreigner, stranger, alien, but it's someone from another nation. This becomes more or less synonymous over time in Israel's history with a Gentile, a non-Jew. But notice the difference here that's being drawn is not just ethnic, but also covenantal, religious, spiritual. Yes, these Gentile foreigners looked probably smelled, probably dressed, probably spoke differently from the Israelites. But most importantly is that they didn't know Israel's God. And it's the second difference that we'll focus most on as as we apply this to ourselves today as Christians. In Christ, there is no Jew and Gentile now, Galatians 3.28. The dividing line is whether or not you're in Christ then. The most important thing is whether or not we know Christ, not even the people group to which we belong, as much as we want to focus on the people groups of the world. And why are they coming? Well, they are coming, according to verse 41, for your name's sake. So they're not merely coming for employment, for education, or for asylum. That's why we can't just plop this into our national policy. They are coming for Yahweh. They're coming to know the one true God. But remember I said, this is a divine action. So what's the divine action here? What is God doing? Well, it's implied in this next statement in verse 42. For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. They shall hear. God is actively working in such a way that his glory would be on display for all the people's watching Israel and watching the temple. Not just his glory, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, which throughout the Old Testament referred to God's saving acts, his salvation, especially in the Exodus out of Egypt, but not just then, also all throughout the history of God's people. Why did God save you? Not just because he loves you as much as he does and as little as we deserve it. He saved you for his own glory, for the fame of his own name. He is passionately committed to his own fame. As I live, God says in Numbers 14, 21, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. 
And Romans 9 says that God appointed some for wrath and some for mercy so that he could show off the full range of his attributes. And we live in light of the final vision of Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the glory, excuse me, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, which is to say, completely. Well, in Solomon's day, though, God was particularly displaying his glory through this temple. If you know anything about Solomon and about this text, you know that Solomon was no minimalist. This place would have put the richest mansion to shame. All imported wood, all layered in gold, with enough floral carvings to make you feel like you're in the Garden of Egypt. And more than 140,000 animals were sacrificed at its dedication. This is quite the event. And yet, it would all be destroyed by 586. You see, a true and better was coming. Jesus said in John 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The temple wasn't the building. The temple to which Jesus referred was his own body. Jesus is the true temple. I love how Matthew Henry the nonconformist minister in England who served in the 17th and 18th centuries, put it, he put it this way. He said, The temple typified the human nature of Christ, in whom dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The ark, referring to the ark of the covenant, typified his obedience and sufferings, by which repenting sinners have access to a reconciled God and communion with him. Remember, think of the temple. Think of God coming down to live with his people. He says this, Jehovah has made our nature his resting place forever in the person of Emmanuel, and through him he dwells with and delights in his church of redeemed sinners. Jesus is the meeting place between God and man. Jesus is the nexus between heaven and earth. God is displaying his glory to all the peoples now, not through a temple, but through Christ. Amen? But then Solomon asks this. He says his request, his petition here, verse 43. Here in heaven, your dwelling place. Note, his true dwelling place is in heaven. And do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. Well, we should read that and think, all? Everything? Why should God do everything or all according to which a random heathen would ask him. Is God some sort of genie that can be manipulated if you're facing the right building, if you're facing the temple in Jerusalem? Well, no is the answer to that. But as evidence, let's take a look at how this prayer is fleshed out two chapters later. When God answers this prayer and foreigners are coming to Israel, what does it look like? Sound good? So flip over to 1 Kings chapter 10. We'll look at the first five verses. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and with much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. When the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, 
the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, their cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. She says, the half had not been told to me. In verse 7. Then look at verse 9. This is a Gentile. She says, blessed be Yahweh, the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. No, God is not some sort of transnational genie. But here we have a foreigner hearing of God and blessing God and blessing Solomon in the name of his God. So God receives foreigners not just as supplicants, not just as people trying to get something from him. God receives all the peoples as adoring worshipers. And this is the second action. Remember the first action, God's displaying his glory. The second action is this, that God receives all the peoples who come to him in Christ. God receives all who come to him in Christ. Now there's a dominant school of thought in American evangelicalism that says that God's plan is primarily Jewish and that this, what you see here, a predominantly Gentile church, well, that's just a bump in the road of God's plan. It's a parenthesis. It's temporary. Well, nothing could be further from the biblical data in that God's heart has always been for all the nations. Yes, the Jewish people, but all the Gentiles, all the people groups of the world as well. When God saved Abraham, the father of the Jewish race, the Hebrew race, in Genesis 12.3, he did so, why? In order that all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When he gave the law to Israel on Mount Sinai, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, say that he essentially made them missionaries, that the other peoples were supposed to look at Israel and their law and say, what other nation has a God like this with laws so good as they have? So if that was true under the Old Covenant, which was mostly focused on Israel, how much more is that true now for us under the New Covenant where we're invited from across the world to worship Christ? Hear what Ephesians 2 says. Therefore, remember that at one time, verse 11, you Gentiles were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, or foreigners, having no hope and without God in the world, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Raise your hand if you are not of ethnic Jewish descent. Go ahead and raise your hand. Almost everyone, not quite everyone. If Solomon saw this room, what would he say? Would he not say, my prayer was answered? Amen? Amen. His prayer was answered indeed. That's a glorious thing and we should revel in it. And by the way, it should change the way that we approach all of our commitments in this world, including our commitments to our, our nation, our tribe. 
Because I have more in common with the Nigerian pastor struggling to figure out the whipped cream can because he's a follower of Christ than I do with my identical, outwardly, white, middle-class, suburban neighborhood in York, Pennsylvania flying a pride flag because we serve different gods. But what is God's goal in both displaying his glory to all the peoples and welcoming, receiving all those who come to him? Remember, I said there's two actions in Solomon's prayer here on God's part and one effect. But we'll split it up in three ways. Verse 43. Don't miss this result. In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So this third point is that all the peoples of the earth will know and fear God in Christ. But each of those three items, let's look at in more detail, this threefold effect. First, that they may know your name. Well, if you know much of the Bible, you know that that is a phrase that's pregnant with meaning. To know God's name is not just to have read his name tag. Hello, my name is God. It's far more than that. To know biblically in the Hebrew mindset, that's a holistic, personal, intimate thing. By way of illustration, Genesis says, Adam knew his wife. And what was the result? Children. I won't get into too many details there, but do the math in your head. It's a very close sort of thing. And likewise, God's name, it's not just the word used to describe him, it's his character. It's who he is. Think of the Great Commission. That's why we're here this week for the GO Conference. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the names of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. No, into the name, singular, the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in that passage, the word name is a stand-in for the single, simple, undivided essence of the eternal God, which the three persons share. God's name is who He is. It's who God is. So to know God's name means more than just to have access to the gospel, as important as that is. You know, in missions, we, sent bench, we, we, we set benchmarks. Easy for me to say. But we, we do. We set goals. We set benchmarks. We'd love to see all the peoples have access to the gospel. That's a good baseline. That's not the end goal. The goal is that the nations themselves would be discipled. When is that done? When, did, when was your discipleship process finished? Was it a couple weeks after you were converted? No. How many of you are still going through a process? That should be every single hand, every single person. Likewise, the process of discipling the nations is never truly finished because to know God is inexhaustible. Of course, we can't comprehend all that there is about God. Listen to the book of Job, Job 26.14. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? We can't comprehend him, but we can apprehend him. In other words, I can't wrap my mental arms fully around him. 
I'll spend endless ages in eternity trying to do that. But what I can do is I can latch on. I can grab onto something on him. I can take hold of him for dear life. And like Job, when we do that, when we begin to know God, the result is fear. Verse 43, that they may fear you. Well, if there's anything unpopular these days, it's the idea of the fear of God, right? We'd rather focus on God's love, on more positive things, more inspiring, helpful things, so we think. Well, one of the most loving things that God ever did in Scripture was rescue about a million people from slavery in Egypt. That was pretty loving, wouldn't you say? And yet consider how the Gentiles reacted watching this happen on the news. This is what Rahab, the harlot, reports in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. She says this to the Israelite spies. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have seen how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came up out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. That's a pretty fearful reaction to an act of love. You might say, well, maybe she's so skittish because she's a prostitute. And she's a pagan as well. She's afraid of God because of her sin. Well, what about the pious, holy, religious, spiritual, righteous prophet Isaiah? His reaction was different. When he saw the glory of God, he did a little dance and he shouted, Hallelujah, my eyes have seen the glory. Is that what he did? No. He said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Isaiah 6.5 It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But lest we stay petrified with fear, there is one final effect, that the peoples would know God, that they would fear him, and third, that they would know that this house that I have built, Solomon says, is called by your name. The end of verse 43. Well, why add that there? Doesn't that seem a bit out of place? Yeah, that's in the context. He's at the temple, right? But doesn't this seem a little bit narrow? Peoples of all over the world are coming, worshiping the one true God. Shouldn't they look up at the heavens and shout and rejoice and ponder how this one God governs all the cosmos, all the peoples? Why should they peer all the way down at a little dot on a map, the old temple mount? It seems a little myopic, perhaps. By the way, this is something that missionaries struggle with. As you pray for your missionaries, pray for this that they would not be ashamed of the particularity of the historic, cultural situatedness of the Christian message. Because many times the temptation when we contextualize is to want to abstract from out of Scripture some sort of one-size-fits-all, perfectly symmetrical, philosophical ideal. 
and bring that to all the nations. But what does this book give us? This gives us something that has a lot of jagged edges, doesn't it? Culturally, historically, and otherwise. And yet this is what we've been given to share with the world. We should not be ashamed of the narrowness of the gospel. But I think there's more than that as well. It's as though God were saying to us, Yes, I fill heaven and earth, Jeremiah 23. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph, Psalm 60. If you ascend to heaven, I'm there. If you make your bed in the grave, I am there. If you take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there I am present, Psalm 139. But if you want to know me, you must come to me my way, not yours. By focusing in on this temple, this dot on a map, God was preparing a watching world for the day that his focus would narrow down, not just on a land, a people group, a place and a time, but on one man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have diversity, broadness, equality, inclusiveness. You can't have all these things that we take for granted that come to us through the Christian heritage that we've idolized in the West today. But these things that this missions conference is about, you can't have any of that broadness and inclusivity without the narrowness and the exclusivity of Christ. Narrow is the way that leads to life. So let's close by looking at three brief words of exhortation that I'd like to share with us coming from this text. Well, we've already considered the fact that by historical standards, we are the foreigners. It's about us. It's also about those who are still foreign, not only to a country, but foreign to Christ, far from Christ. But thinking for a moment about us as the foreigners, ask yourself this. Have I prayed towards this temple? In other words, have I come to God his way by looking to Christ? There is no other temple. The temple in Jerusalem is demolished. It's gone multiple times over. There's no other religion. There's no other philosophy. There's no other name given under heaven by which men may be saved. Plenty of other religions have, have, have come and gone in history. And Christianity nearly did many times as well. But as G.K. Chesterton said in The Everlasting Man, he says, Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. <laughs> but the one temple, the Lord Jesus, now this is the only temple that was torn down and rebuilt three days later. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, lived a perfect, holy, and righteous life not deserving of death, not deserving of judgment. And yet, only he, as the innocent one, died under the full brunt of the wrath of God in behalf of sinners. And only he is the one who rose from the dead to ransom and redeem and raise all who are united with him in faith. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man could ever come to the Father anyway except through him, he says. 
whether you're Jewish, American, Syrian, Nigerian, you cannot afford to be a foreigner with respect to Christ. If you're here and you have not repented of your sin, turned from them, and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, I urge you to do that today. Don't leave here without getting right with Him. Secondly, there is a sense in which not only is Christ the true temple today, but so are we. The New Testament uses that metaphor all throughout. In Christ, since we're indwelt by His Spirit, just like the house of the temple was indwelt by God's glory, then we are a temple as well. We are His house. I read Ephesians 2 earlier. I left out verse 22. In Him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So if that's true of us, we're in Christ, we're in the temple, so we're a temple. How are we doing at that? How are we doing? I skipped over a phrase in verse 43. Solomon prays that the nations, the foreigners, would know and fear God as do your people Israel. Well, if you know anything about Israelites, Israel's history, you know that they failed regularly in that respect. The name of God was blasphemed among the Gentiles on account of their hypocrisy oftentimes. So what about us? Can you pray in good conscience that your foreign neighbors and that your unbelieving and maybe even unreached neighbors would know and fear God the same way you do? Is your worth, is, excuse me, is your faith worth replicating or not? Could a foreigner step into your home for dinner and see you with your kids, see you with your spouse and conclude, oh, I want to know their God. Do the moms see you at the park and follow you on Instagram and see, oh, her faith is clearly what's most important to her. Do you look like a foreigner in the midst of a godless culture? Or are you fully assimilated? We ought not be fully assimilated to a godless culture, chasing all the same idols, subjecting our kids to all the same pagan education that everyone gets, living like the world. We should stand out as the foreigners. And we should have a faith worth replicating. And finally, a little bit of encouragement. Solomon doesn't pray, Lord, let the foreigners hear of you and come to you, as biblical as that would be. Verse 42 says this, it says, For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand. He assumes it to be the case that they will hear. And for 2,000 years, with or without you or any of the missionaries in this room, the gospel has been going forward, conquering the world. This room, the flags in this room, are proof of that. There's much, much to be done, yes, of course. But the Great Commission will be fulfilled. It is unstoppable. The question is, amen, the question is whether or not we'll be a part of it. For them to hear, it says, for they shall hear. For them to hear, they must be told. 
for someone to tell, they must go. And for them to go, they must be sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet that preach the good news. Heavenly Father, we were foreigners, lost in sin, strangers from you. We thank you that in Christ and in your church as well, we're now shining with your glory that you're displaying to all the nations as you gladly receive everyone who comes to you in faith. We've seen your glory. We've been drawn near. You've made us citizens of your kingdom. Help us as your people to know you truly, fear you rightly, and speak your word boldly to all the peoples around us in our neighborhoods, our places of work, people that you've sovereignly brought into our midst that we probably would, have, would not have ever encountered otherwise. So grant, Lord, that more Rahabs, more queens of Sheba would come to Christ in Allentown, in York, Pennsylvania, throughout the U.S., and that as we see their faith in our midst, people that don't look like us, think like us always, Lord, let their faith open our eyes and revive us and provoke us to jealousy so that we would experience revival as well in our land. And we ask this all for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen.